Hi, this is Chris Sarandon, and welcome to Cooking by Heart, where we revisit the vivid memories of the food we grew up with and the people and the stories attached to that time in our lives. Today, my guest is Amanda Burse. Amanda began her professional acting career in New York on All My Children. Then in Los Angeles, she co-starred in the cult horror film Fright Night opposite Chris Sarandon, followed by another classic playing Marcy Darcy on Fox's Married with Children, where she also stepped behind the camera, directing 31 episodes of that show, and then following that with numerous decades directing such shows as Dharma and Greg, Jesse, and The Jamie Foxx Show, among many others. After 40 years in entertainment, Amanda made her off-Broadway directing debut, as well as an acting debut with Party Face. At the height of her acting career, Amanda came out as a lesbian to the public and has served on the boards of the Names Project AIDS Memorial Quilt and the LA Gay and Lesbian Center. Currently, she can be seen in the groundbreaking universal picture, Bros. She's the proud mother of an adopted daughter, Zoe. I'm very thrilled and pleased to welcome Amanda Burris. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Chris. How nice to see you. Lovely to see you too, my dear. Not often enough, but here we are. At least it's happening. Do you know what yes, I mean? Because exactly. When we first came together in the convention universe, I hadn't seen you in 20-something years, I think. Oh, God, don't remind me. <laughs> I know, they do fly, they do fly. But let me get started with something uh, that I normally begin with, which is, uh, I talk provenance, that is, where we're from, because I think that has a lot to do with uh, how we're brought up and also the food we eat, obviously. And you come originally from, born in? Orlando, Florida, and spent most of my childhood growing up just north in a little suburb called Winter Park. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but my then, family is generationally from Atlanta, Georgia. I was uh, I was the one, I was the different one who um, really spent more time, more of that kind of early childhood time in Florida rather than Georgia. Right, right. And tell me, tell me a little bit about your parents, mom and dad. Dad was? My father, um, a child of the Depression mm-hmm. and um, World War II vet. Uh, oh, really? Went to school where, on the GI Bill. Where did your dad serve? Um, he was in the Army. He was a communications sergeant. Mm-hmm. And his the most profound experience, well, one of them, where he was wounded, was in Strasbourg in France. And he received um, the Bronze Star uh, wow. because he's, his, uh, his unit was pretty much decimated. Decimated. And yep. um, and he hung in there with communication and received a bronze star and a purple heart um, and uh, came back to Atlanta where he was born and grew up mm-hmm. and uh, attended Georgia Tech on the GI Bill. He studied engineering and architecture, and that really was his passion. But he kind of followed in that sort of post-World War II, 1950s footsteps of you take a good job that comes along as opposed to go follow your dreams that may not look lucrative at the moment. Mm -hmm. Sort of Um, like acting. uh Kind of like that. (laughs) I kind of had a similar journey. Um, But uh, yeah, but he always, he was always drafting. He was always designing. He ended Mm -hmm. up designing the house that I spent most of my childhood in. Oh, and then we worked together designing some projects that I built later on. And yeah, Uh, it'll be interesting because I I, want to follow up on that a little bit later. But right now, let's get to mom. Tell me about your mom. Big Ann. Big Ann was about as big as a minute. Um, (laughs) Actually, she that was her, you know, sort of became her name when I had cousins and one was named for her. Her her sister named her daughter Ann. And so instead of referring to my mother as Aunt Anne, she yes. began and then oh. just kind of stuck, especially when grandchildren came along. That's how I grew up. My dad was named Chris, so I was little Chris, and he was big Chris. It's and, a, it's uh, a, I was a, uh, in a border state, but it is a kind of Southern thing. Yeah, you were you you yep. know you know some Appalachia. You've got yep. some Appa- Appalachia oh, yeah. going on oh, yeah. there because yeah. we ended up in the North Georgia mountains, and I brought Zoe back. Uh, I brought her from L.A. to grow her there 
um, for your daughter. Yes. A good, a good few years of her childhood that mm. began was this lovely, soft, gracious, um, uh, Southern woman and, uh, left college. She was at Wesleyan, which is in uh, Georgia an yeah. all girls school. She left at her junior year to marry my dad. Mm. Nine months later, they had their first child. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's like three years this later is- than another and three years later. Moi. Mm-hmm. So, um, so you're the youngest of three. I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but she eventually went back to school when I, when we were in winter park, there's a lovely, uh, liberal arts college there called Rollins college. And she was able, when I was about, I guess eight or so, uh, to finish her, um, undergrad and began a, a teaching career of early childhood education. And then when I graduated high school, they went back to Atlanta mm-hmm. and she got a master's in early childhood education and really had, you know, kind of a full blown career uh, for a good 20 something years. So but second life in her 30s, you know, 30s, mm-hmm. to 50s. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's go back in time to when you were young. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about, so at the time, mom was, before she was working, what was it like around the dinner table? What was the fare? Well, we we did have dinner together every night. Or every night, good. Or call it supper. In the South, it's kind of interesting. I don't know if it was this way in your family. Dinner was referred to as the meal, mostly after church on Sunday at around two o'clock. You know, that meal. Supper was later in the day and usually lighter. Well, we just ended up calling it supper, but it was basically, you know, that dinner meal. My mother's, right. uh, she was not that interested in cooking, although she provided a, a, a meal every night um, on the dinner table. And, um, and it was nutritious until that kind of convenience box food came came into play um, in the 70s. And um, right. so we had a little bit of that because she was either in school or 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 busy. Um, so it was it was important for us to come together as a family. Right. My brother sat opposite my sister and me, my mother and father at one end of the table. So it, it was sort of that that Norman Rockwell um all American family. Yes. What were the meals like? Uh, what did mom cook? What well, did mom cook? You know, there was red meat. There was, you know, it, there was hamburgers usually once a week, sometimes steak, uh, a chicken, a pork chop, you know, with your side dishes. It mm-hmm. wasn't fresh from the garden. It wasn't farm to table. Um, but yet it was well-rounded. Yeah. Canned, canned I, stuff, a lot of canned fresh but there were you know that that's also when i was a kid it was um, the frozen came into play right so it was fresh frozen so it was i think a step up from the can oh yeah um and so we had that and then there was usually like a fresh salad um or something like that or fruit um but there, it was sort of like that wheel you remember that food wheel or trying oh, yeah. or whatever absolutely yeah yeah the department of agriculture food wheel <laughs> She right. followed nice. that plan, and and it wasn't terribly inventive, but it was satisfying. Um, I was known as the picky eater mm-hmm. of the family, you know, being that different one. And mm-hmm. um, I, I, uh, my daughter actually explained this to me that it's called tasters and non tasters. Have you heard of this? No, no. Explain. So you would think that a ta- uh, a non taster would be the picky eater. I don't want to taste that. I don't want to eat that. Sometimes your eyes eat first, but it's actually the opposite. So tasters are often the picky eaters because our taste buds taste things in a way that we we rebel against. You know what I mean? We don't like. And so it's the non-tasters who have more expansive palates. Interesting. uh, I wonder wonder if that would extrapolate to uh, chefs. People who have that extra taste, whatever, uh, uh, sight, uh, both olfactory and on their tongues, uh, tend to be people who are very much uh, more uh, adept at creating food. 
Well, and my daughter's a chef. I mean, she's not, oh. not by profession, but she's oh. the one who embraced the cooking is her Zen. Mm-hmm. She's not in the kitchen making food at least once right. a day. She's she's sort of a little off balance. Right. I grew up with it not being a it being necessary. Certain ha- I certainly had things I really enjoyed. I certainly had right. things that I was the one sort of like mommy dearest where I was left at the dinner table. My father <laughs> got his ice cream for dessert and I'm watching and the plate of food is still in front of me. Right. And the lights go out on the dinner table and I'm still sitting there with the plate of food. <laughs> Were you told that you had to stay until you finished? Basically, but... Um, after- the little starving children in China syndrome <laughs> thing? No, they didn't. She didn't play that card, really. But it it was... I think that, you know, they got fed up uh, with it. And I was also the one often provoked by my brother to sort of act out or act at the table. Right. And um, the little performer that was me from the get go. Yeah. And he would he would get her get me rolling to the mm-hmm. point where there would need to be discipline. And unfortunately, <laughs> it was not it was it that didn't have to happen. Mm-hmm. But again, we're children of an era where. Oh, absolutely. That's what they knew. That's what they did. And yeah. um, and that was highly unpleasant. But, you know, it didn't stop me. <laughs> and also, <laughs> it was it was at a time when, I, I don't know about you, but when I grew up, it was the old quote, children are to be seen and not heard. Well. But, but so you're sure. fighting against those constraints. Always. Is what I'm saying, you know, that you're expected to behave at the table. And for the most part, I tried, you know, I, <laughs> you, did, you did your best. I did my best. And again, uh, there was great provocation across the table, Yes, but right. he didn't end up getting, you know, yeah, getting in trouble for it. Right. Right. Well, that's because you had, you had that spotlight, that natural spotlight. Oh yeah, yeah exactly. What was the conversation like around the table with your parents and your, your siblings? Um, my sister was a non-present presence. And um, she couldn't wait to get out. She cleaned her plate and got out of there. How much older? And and even though she was not that much, you know, six years is not that great a gap. Well, it is. It's enough. Yeah. But I did realize that when I experienced other people who had older siblings, even older than that, that there could be some interaction, but there never was. (laughs) So at least not with her. She got the hell out of Dodge, uh, literally at the dinner table, as well as in life. um, But my mother and my brother was, he, he, he's been off the planet for decades and decades, Mm. but he had a great sense of humor as did my mom. And so it was our joy. Danny's and mine to make her laugh. So mm-hmm. part of that was sort of encouraged and delight, deli- you know, they delighted in it. But then mm-hmm. for me, it was always, and enough, and it was enough already. Bada bing. Enough already. <laughs> and, but that's interestingly uh, important in my life psychologically. Mm-hmm. Because it really, and this is after years and years and years of processing and therapy, right. that I realized that I could go a certain amount and then enough. And so I took, I sort of took that in and it did not serve me in terms of my momentum of, of, uh, actualizing who you were fully, fully who I was. And also, yeah. um, uh, just going for what I wanted instead of saying, I've had enough. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, by the way, not an uncommon phenomenon for for kids who were born uh, in the 40s, 50s, and even into the 60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is that there was still a kind of cultural, uh, there were cultural constraints that were enough is enough. Uh, even if it's you know children are to be seen and not heard, even if it's not that far, it's there are certain things that you're allowed to do in the in the uh, um, in the family. Uh, with us, it was uh, anger. You didn't get angry. 
Oh. Uh, you weren't allowed to be angry with any 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 parent, particularly. You know, my father came from the old country, and it was watch out <laughs> if you're if you're uh, if you're angry. And and also, my mom was very much of that tradition because she came from a very constrained kind of family where her father was a despot. Uh, but anyway, back to back to your family. So at the table, much much merriment. Uh, <laughs> with, describe. Can you describe your brother a little bit to me? Oh, I know Danny, he's no he longer was, with he, us, but he was. Uh, he he had a twinkle, and um, and of the three of us, he really was the the brightest star. And mm-hmm. you know, I look at his passing at age twenty six as something that oh, just burned bright wow. very fast, and then. Yes. And um, but he's always been with me. I was 23. And so here I am over 40 years later, and he's just always been right here. And mm-hmm. his presence is is uh I it's it's just it's such a strong important presence in my life, his soul. And you know, I'm woo-woo enough, Chris, that I I'm awake to it. Yes. And you talk to him? Uh, sure. You know, all, and, and then when my mother passed and we were very, very close and, mm-hmm. um, and she actually in the grand scheme of things, uh, died at 75, which to me is young. Relative, yes. Uh, as right. I'm getting up to it. Yes. <laughs> my <laughs> right, friends are, exactly. are there and past it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, I'm past it. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, and so the same thing and, um, you know, both my mother and I see bright light and it's a phenomenon. It, mm-hmm. And, you know, people might call it a kooky sudden thing. Mm. Um, but to me, it's it's um, it's spirit manifest and it's uh, it's not scary. It's mm-hmm. a reminder that we're not alone, that this mm-hmm. existence that we hear our mortal existence on the planet uh, yes. is not I'm, the I- only plane of existence. Listen, my, my wife, Joanna, is very clear. She does, talks about this in a one-woman show that she does, uh, in which when her mom was, was dying, uh, she said, Mom, where will you be? How will I know that you're there? And her mother said, in the lights. And now things happen. I mean, it's a little not scary. It's it's extraordinary that uh, uh, things like you know her sister in in her yard had a a stream of lights in a ficus bush in Los Angeles, and they never worked. And the the day that they were sitting there talking about her mom, one light popped up. Yeah. And now single lights pop up all the time. Well, this is Joanna. light that's not connected to a source. Yeah. Yeah. So I understand, even, but it's yeah, yeah. that far out and we can just go down this, this um, wormhole, but um, right. we're, we're this, this bright wormhole. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? It, the, the essence of it is, Chris, is that I am at peace. Uh, I miss them, each of them. Every With these day. Losses. Yeah. And a lot of my family is on the, my party, as I say, is really on the other side. And, mm-hmm. and I hope to, to, to join them in due time. Um, yes. And have fun again with them, but I, it's yes. sort of like I carry them with me. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, it's okay. Yeah, and and also one of the reasons why I wanted to do this particular show was because of my connection to food and the family that I had. Uh, all through my early life, because my dad owned a restaurant. Mm-hmm. So that's why I, I talk to people about this, because I know that food has an important part in the community of the family. Yes. Uh, uh, and it continues uh, all through our, our years. So so let's get back to that. Um, so w- when you were a kid, uh, the talk around the dinner table was, uh, uh, other than you guys exploding with, with laughter or acting up, what, was there any other conversation that went on over dinner? Was there politics? Was there uh, just the daily uh, minutia of life? What was it generally? Well, my father was um, more quiet. Quiet and really, I understood the non-present presence with him as well. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think he was in his head a lot. You know, going back to his his beginnings, he was profoundly. He could not have not been profoundly affected by his experience in the war. 
I've, I've heard this before from other people who had uh, parents who were fathers who were in the service in World War II. Right. And and I kind of came to know that a little bit. And he got older and would have sort of go under for some treatment or something. Mm-hmm. That's where he went. He went to those. He was coming out of it. You know what I mean? So he was in that sort of yeah. not quite lucid state. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's where he was. So I think a lot of that got just really suppressed. Um, there was some talk. There was some sort of serious kind of parental conversation. It's not like they didn't discuss things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it was Walter Cronkite every evening. So uh. us, the dining table was the gathering point where our presence was demanded. Mm-hmm. And um and and then it, we it was in front of the television um for Walter Cronkite. Right. And right. um, you know, my dad had a my mom had a beer in a can for my father. Neither of my parents drank excessively. Um, and but it was that started with that, come in the door, kiss hello, beer in the can, and then dinner gets on the table. So there was quite a routine mm-hmm. which I found comfort in. Yes, absolutely. I had a a lot of structure so that there was safety in that for me. And I think also my father was very much, um, he was an intellectual. So he was just, I think, more in his head as a human being. Right. Um, My mother had a a different sort of um, warmth. And um, it's not that my father was cold, but just not as available. Right. So, um she was the one that I was more focused on uh, pleasing, if you will, and mm-hmm. uh, and engaging and how sharing stories and things like that. Right. And right. Um, so it was our family time. It's interesting that you talk about this as being the time when the family kind of coalesced, because this is something that I think, at least in our culture, in American culture now, because uh, often... There are two wage earners in the family, and uh, kids are sometimes overactivityed in the sense that they've got classes or sports or whatever, that, that that kind of sitting around the dinner table has kind of gone by the wayside. Mm-hmm. That it's, you know, you get dinner when you come home, it's already prepared, uh, uh, you're eating in shifts, whatever. And uh, I, I think it's a great loss uh, in a lot of ways. Well, um, and when... I I tried to do that with my daughter growing up. So even though um, I I was a bit of a stress monkey and a work animal, but I had partners at times and I wanted to create tradition and and ritual. I I value that and wanted to provide that and had that for a good long time. And then even when it was just Zoe and me, when I left LA, it was just Zoe and me. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, uh, but there was, there was a continuum. Um, yeah. There just weren't that many people at the table. And it's really important for the kids. You know, we we get a lot out of it as parents, but it's more important for them to have that sense, as you just said, of how you felt that you had that that routine. Uh, yeah. That it wasn't, it, it may have been, you know, boring in, on a kind of continuum, continuous basis in the sense that it was the same thing that happened over and over again. But as you, just as you expressed it. It was comforting. Well, and I played hard um, as a kid. I was outdoors mm-hmm. and growing up in Central Florida, you know, you had just beautiful weather yeah, yeah. majority of the time. And I was just right. barefoot and suntanned and running around and just mm-hmm. played so hard that it was sort of that rule. You got to be home for dinner. Do you know what I mean? What time? What time? Um, six. Mm. We were five. <laughs> my dad had to be at five because he worked opposite weekend weeks. He would be on the evening shift at the restaurant one week and then the morning shift the other week. So when, uh, when he was on the morning shift, we ate at home the evening shift. Mom and I went to the restaurant and we had dinner there. Oh, nice. Ex- yeah. Oh, except when I was, when I was working there and then it was totally different, but whether that's me, I want to know, did you guys go out? Well, we, uh, not a lot, not a lot. And it wasn't that, it wasn't necessarily a budget mm-hmm. driven thing. Um, uh, we just kind of had that homebody experience. I think both of my parents were more uh, 
comfortable at home. You know, they, mm. they had friends, they had friends from their early childhood that became friends throughout their lives. Right. And then we had friends in the neighborhood, but they weren't overly, um, they were not social animals by any, any stretch mm-hmm. of the imagination. And so I think that kind of drove that a little bit. There was just, there was comfort at home. And, uh, but every Friday when we first moved, um, back to Florida, when I was in first grade, um, there was a cafeteria, Morrison's cafeteria, and we mm. go there on Fridays. So that was kind of the big thing. And and that's exciting for a kid. It was very exciting because I Choices. got sugar. I got sugar. I didn't get a lot of sugar at home. So mm-hmm. they had that red dye number three Kool-Aid thing in the container that rolled <laughs> all the time. And that's all I could focus on. That was just the only thing I was really in. That and the dessert that was just the dessert section that was down yes, right. Um, but uh that became a little bit of, of a ritual for a time. And then my right. father loved deli food. And, mm. and um and so there was a good deli in in Orlando. So every once in a while we'd go there, and that's where I fell in love with sodium mm-hmm. and um sauerkraut and pickles on the table. Oh yes. And I got a lot of my father's uh desire for that. I also got his poor digestive system. <laughs> so oh, yes. um, we paid. Yeah, I inherited one of those as well. Paid the Thank price you very for much. that. Yeah. yeah, but I yeah. still love it today. And, and, and interestingly, ironically, you know, in the past, we thought of those as being kind of, uh, if for want of a better word, junk junk food, and that there was a lot of sodium, et cetera. But now we know that any fermented product is great for our intestinal biome. So pickles, sauerkraut. It was the pastrami. No. Yeah, right. That's and, That was the killer, the yes, clogger. Exactly. The artery but clogger. I, I was delighted to find that something that I craved actually did, because I found that out, what you're talking yeah. about, the fermentation out uh, later on. And mm-hmm. I've always been one of those people who love pickles and, you know, vinegar and yeah. olives and things like that. Right. So, so then when you were a kid, you're palette was there there wasn't a lot of experimentation by your mom uh as far as the kind of stuff she made it was basically all american diet uh uh meat uh potatoes uh, vegetables etc yeah what was there a time when your taste buds were a particular time when your taste buds were awakened that's interesting. Was it after you left home or was it was there a time when you were a kid when you experienced something that you went, oh, wait a minute? Um, not the deli. Actually, the deli, obviously. Yeah, that that really was that did that did wake me up a little bit because it wasn't like anything other than having sort of Spanish olives and pickles yeah. at home in the refrigerator. It, right. it wasn't that kind of food. Um you know, I grew up at a time when vegetables were a little different. They they were more what we're trying to get back to now, which is which is without a lot of um, preservatives and things. So a tomato mm-hmm. in the South when I was a child oh. was like a and they called some of them beef steak was like a piece of steak. And, yes. and so I lived on tomato sandwiches. I lived on man. Oh. Oh, my favorite thing when I was a kid, a tomato sandwich with mayonnaise. Yeah. And I didn't, it wasn't yeah. a BLT. No. It was just a tomato sandwich yep. on white bread um, yep. with mayonnaise, salt. And, salt and pepper. Yep. And tomatoes just very rarely do I have one. I was just, I was in Atlanta this summer. A friend of mine grows tomatoes in her garden. And it was the closest thing that I've experienced to that kind of tomato. So I don't know, maybe it's something in the clay. Maybe it's something in the Georgia soil. Um, but Oh, it's the same, same where I live because I have a garden and summer tomatoes fresh from the vine. I mean, I remember very vividly when I was a kid, my dad, we didn't have a garden, but he had a few tomato plants. And the uh, idea, and also when we went to Florida, because we had relatives, my mom's family was from Florida. Whereabouts? And, uh, Tarpon Springs, just outside of Tampa. I was going to say, that's, north that's of Tampa. the Gulf Coast. Little, yeah, little Greek, actually, little, you were just west of me. 
Yeah, Greek town. Yeah, yeah, Tarpon yeah. Springs. Okay, okay, yeah. okay. My mom grew up in a in a Greek community in Tarpon Springs, and we would go and pick a tomato, but have a salt shaker with us. Oh, uh-huh. <laughs> and just literally on the spot, sprinkle a little salt on it and eat it right off the vine. Well, I do that now with my tomato plants. I have like eight or ten tomato plants every summer. All kinds of different varieties, grape tomatoes, cherry tomatoes, heirloom tomatoes, beefsteaks, plum tomatoes, uh, you name it. Just, well, I've seen some of your Instagram pictures of your your harvests, and it it just makes my mouth water. It really does, because there's nothing like that. Now, I had that. We would go on vacation up to the North Georgia mountains where, mm-hmm. and this goes way back with family history. My grandfather and his brother, after they graduated high school in Atlanta. Now this is about 1914 mm-hmm. around there, 15 before the world war one. And there wasn't, um, or maybe they, they finished a level of school and then high school was sort of attached to college somewhat. Mm. There was a mm. small college uh, high school thing, institution in the North Georgia mountains. And they literally got on a horse-drawn cart and went up to this little town called Young Harris, Georgia, and went finished their education there. Well, my grandfather pined for that place and hope to retire there. But the depression really hit him and his family hard. And so that never manifested. But his daughter, maiden aunt, uh-huh, uh, if you will. Uh, this is the great, the great aunt? No, not the great one. My father's sister, my uh, aunt. Okay, we got can, it. Um, we can refer to her as the Dyken aunt because <laughs> as one of my <laughs> That's where the gene came from. That's when. Well, I don't know. Uh, I just i i i did. It was an interesting relationship. Uh-huh. I watched this person not live their life fully, uh-huh. and therefore spend a lot of time um, numbing. Yeah, and- I have. I've done a podcast with a with a friend of mine, a television writer, who talked about his father. Same thing. And um, yeah, and it's unfortunate and and really not an easy person to 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 be with. However, yeah, yeah. when I was young, she had moved there in 63 and kind of sort of fulfilling a wish for her dad and they would come and visit. And she had a garden that was uh, it, it was like a pasture almost. It was. Oh, right. And it was magnificent. And they, she ate out of that garden. And the only thing they'd go into town for was was meat and scotch. <laughs> I wasn't really interested in the scotch, but it was yeah. it growing. Being in Central Florida, being a beach kid, mm-hmm. and then coming up to the mountains and having this whole other sort of agri cornucopia experience yeah. was was very special. And the smells and the the, the sensual um, aspect of it really stayed with me. It was kind of, and more so even than the things we did there. Mm-hmm. It was the simple things of going to pick dinner. Yeah, thank you for bringing up smells because that's something that I don't talk about enough here. Because not in the experience of food, there's so much that has to do with smell. Oh yeah, uh, and, and memory. Absolutely. Uh, I, I mean, I, I'm sure you, as many of our listeners probably do, remember, I remember the first day of school because of the smell. I don't I remember, remember. the change in the air. Yes. Uh, the, and, and the smell of the desks, the wood in the desks, oh. and, and, the, and the, the, the pencil shavings. Oh. I remember the smell of that and the lead. Uh, there's so many things, and, and, and it extends, of course, to food because there's so much of that experience, yes. part of the food experience that is smell. Well, like what you were talking about with the tomato, that's what we would do. There'd be a sugar snap fee, right? That oh. snap off. Yes. And even not the sugary ones, the big old pole beans. Yep. Just break them open and and eat right there. And nothing that like was it. Not what I was experiencing in suburbia. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And <laughs> she was way ahead of her time in terms of eating, not out of necessity, farm to yes. people because that part of the world, that rural part of the world, 
that's how they fed themselves. Yep, exactly. But hers was more purposeful in that I'm choosing to cultivate. Yes. Uh, and sort of it was sort of a rejection of she had a career in the 50s and with Delta Airlines and and she left the city. She didn't want it mm-hmm. and came to have this different kind of life, which, interestingly enough, now I put it together. I did the same thing for my daughter. My daughter wasn't a city kid. And we left mm-hmm. L.A. in 2000 when she was starting first grade. Mm-hmm. And I moved her back to that place, to the same little town, because our family history continued there. Now, was this the family, the, the farm? Well, my aunt, Joe had yeah. that 130 acres that butted up to a, a national preserve, which was just incredible. Oh. Then my same side of the family, paternal, her and my father had an aunt who had bought a little parcel of 30-something acres and would come up in the summers from Atlanta, right? And um, when she passed, uh, that went to my father. And so then we became rooted there in a way. And eventually he carved out five acres for me and five acres for my sister. And we built our own places there. And it was our sort of uh, compound. Mm -hmm. And for a time in our lives, we were all there at the same time. It was really quite something. It didn't last long enough. Do you still spend time there? Not at all. Or is it passed on? It's not that it 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 grew, um, it changed, and and definitely death, loss, and all of that just it 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 covered it. I was uh-huh. very careful with Zoe, my daughter, Greek name, by the way. Yes, I know. Um uh to to make sure that she wasn't still attached in some way to it. Um but even though she was preteen, she too experienced the shift in, in the, the loss of family due to yes. death and, and, and just separation. And mm-hmm. it wasn't a place that, that called to her. We've, you know, she still has friends. She was just there mm-hmm. uh, this summer visiting. And I said, you know, what was it? Did it, was it great to wake up and mm-hmm. smell the boxwoods and the things that really come alive there? And, mm-hmm. um, and she said, yeah. And I said, Do you, would you ever see yourself there again? And then this is so perfect for my daughter. She goes, no, politically, I can never live in that state. <laughs> well, let's go back to a time when uh, you were in the business. And while you were uh, at, kind of at the height of your uh, visibility in the public, you came out. Yes. And your, I tell me about your your mom and dad's reaction to that. Was your were your well, parents alive? You know, I was um, pretty much bisexual all my life. Mm-hmm. I dated boys, which is why I put the bi, you know, yes. just for clarification. Yeah, yeah. And um, you know, on into my twenties. But mostly my my real connections were with same sex relationships. Yeah, yeah. So I identify as a lesbian and yeah. um, and always lived my life that way. Yeah. Uh, when and I had um, from a from high school. So oh, really? my mother wasn't clueless. And eventually. But interesting that your mom had a religious background, but she was. Well, we were with, we were two cars three kids in church on Sunday. It was that right. kind of a religious background. My mother's faith, like mine, runs deep, but it's private. It's not, okay. something, especially for me, and I've gone in and out of different sort of institutional or frameworks of how to worship, but really yes. it's more on that spirituality. My mother I understand. was funneled a little more um, traditionally through yes. um, the Presbyterian Church, and then she eventually made her way, as did I, to the Episcopal Church. Mm-hmm. And then, um, so her family, church. it wasn't so much, she didn't grapple with that. It We were not like, you're going to burn in hell kind of family. Right, right. Um, not at all. It was very passive. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and frankly, boring. Um, that's probably why <laughs> I like the Episcopalians, because there's a lot more, you know, 
pomp and circumstance. There's a little bit right. of theatricality going on. Also, yes. I found a parish that was incredibly welcoming to all. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of the way I believe the whole message yes. of Jesus and that whole thing going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. About all absolutely. are welcome, right? Yeah. And, and with a, a church also, a denomination that has female bishops. Oh, yeah. And gay. Uh, uh, yeah. And, and gay as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all inclusive. Right. And yeah. it actually fractured the that church. But uh, my mother's religious, my mother's spirituality and her connection to faith um, was number one. There's, she said it herself. And then yeah. her children, and then her husband, and then right. her. And yeah, know, that's essentially what I meant about her acceptance of, of you and your coming out. She loved me unconditionally. And how fortunate was yes. I. And, and I, I've said this in, in interviews, Chris, that, mm. um, you know, she had me see a therapist when I was in high school because she thought I was a latent, latent homosexual. <laughs> and inside me, I'm going, there's nothing latent, about it, you know, it's it's there. And, it's there, mom. Um, and so really, when I came out, it was almost that conversation or it was that conversation of her yep. saying, is there something you want to tell me about mm-hmm. your relationship with so and so? So she just let that door open. And how- so in a way, in a way, she initiated the conversation. At that moment, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And my father was kind of a follower longer. Yeah. You know, because like many Southern families, we talked about this, I think, once upon a time, that it's very matriarchal. It can be very matriarchal. And and it's sort of like that gloved hand over an iron fist in terms of that that strong female presence in the family. Yes. And oftentimes the fathers are, are more they're 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 deemed to be even you know and by the mom respect your father and and what he does he's the he's the puts the food on the table yes, if you will yes. when really she was the strength she was the 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 forward thinker. Yes. And, and this I, is, by the way, not uncommon in many cultures, by the way. Yeah. I mean, I have this conversation with Adriana Trujani, who's a, a writer, a wonderful writer, novelist. And the uh, same thing in her family. Her mother worshipped her father, but basically her mother ran everything, uh-huh. as did her grandmothers. Yeah, I can. It, it's kind of that way. It, it, I can look at that in my family as well. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, although exactly. there were some very strong and um, men it's yeah, yeah, not that they course. were total buffoons or anything that can yeah. happen, but it was just, I think my mother grew three children to be who they were going to be. And even mm-hmm. though I grew up in that, there was, it was shame based. Yes. And I've listened to enough Brene Brown, <laughs> my life. Uh-huh. Do you know her? Mm. Wonderful no. speaker about shame and self-worth and things like that. Oh, yes. I know who she is. Yes, absolutely. And sure. um, that, you know, that was a that was a card that was played off and shame oh, I'm very sure. big in the yeah, South, yeah. too. And you are a reflection of our family. Yes. She still grew us to be three very individual personalities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's amazing for that, I, I, that time. I want to... S- I want to circle back to something very quickly, because uh, I know uh, recently when you and I spoke, you were talking about going out and seeing architecture, because you have an interest in mid-20th century, 50s particularly, uh, architecture. Your father, you, and you also mentioned earlier in this conversation that you and your father had a link in, in your interests in architecture. Was that reflected at all? You said you built a compound at the farm. I ended up building um, a cabin that he and I took the, the design and played around with it. And then I did another house there and then I did a big barn. And so to, together, cause he was the engineer, yes. I'm a very visual person. So that's why in my career, some of what drew me behind the camera in terms of making and creating the pictures, right. I've always had that sort of aesthetic sense. And my mother had a strong aesthetic. She was the one that sort of decorated the home, you know, the interiors. And I can remember as a child that I would decorate my room, Chris. Mm-hmm. You know, for every holiday, I was such a geek. Mom, come <laughs> see. 
come see what I've done for Halloween and Christmas. And, you know, and here I am living it out. Right. My, all through my adult life and not yes. really connecting those dots until mm-hmm. recently. But well, yes, but I how- always loved mid-century. I'm a mid-century kid. Yes. My father studied mid-century architecture. My mother's father. So other side of the family. So comes mm-hmm. from both. He actually lived through his career as an architect in Atlanta mm-hmm. and was somewhat known. Mm-hmm. And his buildings are still there. And um, there's a famous theater in Atlanta, the Fox Theater. Oh, of course. His, his design firm was a part of that. And he ended up being partners with Phil Schutze, who's credited as the lead architect. But my my grandfather, whom I never knew, he died the year mm-hmm. I was born, uh, was a big part of that uh, project. Was he, what was his what was his name? His name was Jesse Armistead. Jesse Warren Armistead. Oh, Armistead and, is a very old Southern name. Well, when I met Armistead Mopin, you know, do you, you know? I know who he is. Yeah, author? sure. And he he's very well known. He's uh, known especially for tales. In the, Tales of the City, Tales of the very City, coming yeah. out San Francisco gay based yep. storytelling, and we met at one point, you know, years and years ago. And he has that lovely. He's from North Carolina, the lovely draw. And yep. I said, you know what? I'm. I told him my mother's maiden name was Armistead, mm-hmm. and we just determined that we're probably kin. Yep. <laughs> As they say, we were kin. Yep. Um, <laughs> but yes, no, both my. My father and uh, my grandmother, his mother, were very interested in genealogy, and that yep. came that interest came to me as well. So mm-hmm. I know of my family's roots on this soil, and both sides of my family go back to the 1600s. They've been oh wow in that part of the country. First, my father's uh, family came into the Cape. From, ah, well, uh, that's the way they, that was the entry point. Well, they yeah. probably emptied the prison, and my relative, <laughs> right. my ancestor was one of those. Right, and knowing knowing you, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> <laughs> that criminal element. Of the, yes, exactly. The part of me. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, his name was Augustine, mm. and that was 1636. Oh, wow. And that so was on a- and so my last name is spelled, and... You know, if I had it to do all over again, Chris, I probably should have changed my name because nobody knows how to say it. You do. I do. But it's most people say Bierce because Mm -hmm. it's B-E-A-R-S-E. And it wasn't until I did a movie of the week up in Boston and they knew how to say my last name. Bess, Bess. And on on the main drag in Hyannis is the Asa Burse house. Oh, and um, it was a restaurant at the time. I think it's now it's last time I saw it, it was boarded up. But there's mm. a first street sign. Mm-hmm. And um, so it, I go grave walking there. That's how. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Where I live, there are a lot of old cemeteries as well. And it's just fascinating to walk through them and 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 imagine just imagine. Well, uh, I'd like to. an older part of our country, you know, yeah. on the West Coast. It, it's a baby. Yeah. Compared yeah. to compared. life on the East Coast. And yes. so my mm. mother's family came into Virginia. Mm. And it wasn't until um, the Civil War or actually part of my family. So I just say I have a lot of karmic debt. And I mean it <laughs> because some of my New England family ended up down in the South when the white guys uh, broke the treaties with the indigenous mm-hmm. um, culture, the Creeks and the Cherokee and created the, the lottery of uh, 1830. Mm-hmm. And there were actually three and they came down and, you know, to them, what was being sold is try free land, you know, yeah, right, they didn't right. really it question that much where it came yeah, from. Who, where, yeah. Right. Who it really belongs to. Uh, I, I want to circle back again, okay? Uh, I want to go back to your childhood, and I, I, I ask this question of everyone that I talk to. Okay. If there is one culinary experience that you had when you were a kid, be it a dish that your mom made or uh, someplace that you went and something that you ate, something that triggers 
a very strong memory, the most, the strongest memory to you, what would that be? Well, at this point in time, my grandmother, my father's mother was the baker. She mm-hmm. was more embraced that than my mother. And mm-hmm. so at Christmas time, she would do a lot of baking and cookies and so forth. And she made this devil's food cookie that I had Ooh. never seen before, but it, it's actually out there and it's not that uncommon. And it's a little devil's food cookie that separates at the top and then you push it into powdered sugar, right? And, and uh-huh. it's, it's just a little chocolate cookie with powdered yep. sugar on it. And my brother craved them, craved them. And so they became known in my family as Danny cookies. Mm-hmm. And so when we would hear that she was baking, oh, is she going to make Danny cookies? Are the, da- are the Danny cookies on their way? And mm-hmm. then losing my brother so so young, so long ago, it, yes. it, 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 there's this whole other wash this is a story. of yeah. sentimentality and memory yeah. that's associated with that. Do you have the recipe? Once upon a time, I did. It's not that uncommon. Now I... It, I, I thought they were unique to my family, that my grandmother, yeah. they were my grandmother's recipe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the other one on the other side, same thing, holiday time, were cheese straws. Mm. Cheddar cheese, um, little cayenne. Mm-hmm. A lot a lot of, you know, white flour going on in my family. Crisco, mm-hmm. white sugar, all that. Of course. Crisco, Crisco. Uh, I, I'm going to ask you for a recipe. And uh, I'm going to leave it up to you, but one of those two would be wonderful. They sound great. Uh, eh, eh. We'll we'll talk about this post post discussion. Sure. But I want to I want to thank you, Amanda, so much for joining me at Cooking by Heart. So much has come from yours and has joined with mine. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, this has been a, a, a delightful experience for me. Oh, thank you, Chris. What a wonderful thing you've created here. Oh, thanks. This platform, it was just, it's always nice being in conversation with you. And um, and just what a what a beautiful experience that I've gotten to now share in with you. So thank you very thank much you. for having me. Yeah, and thank you for sharing it. All right, talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.